Angels of Death is a name often given to medical staff who murder patients, usually nurses, but Dr. Harold Shipman and Joseph Mengele are also included on many of the lists of perpetrators. The reasoning behind their murders is often complex, often sadistic exerting their power and control over helpless patients. Sometimes as a malignant hero, whereby they induce a serious or life-threatening situation by administering unprescribed drugs, only to sweep in and save the day, thereby becoming the hero of the situation and basking in the praise heaped upon them. Sometimes mental illness is involved, sometimes it's a personality disorder, and sometimes it appears that it is pure evil that drives these murderers. This phenomenon is worldwide, all types of victims, but the particularly repugnant subject of the murder of babies and young children is the subject of this week's episode. This is the case of Beverly Allett, and this is Murder Me on Monday. Hi, welcome back to the Murder Me on Monday podcast. I am Cameron, and joined with me is Mother. Hello. You looked confused there. You looked away. Why did you turn away from the mic? Because I wasn't sure if I was going to cough, hiccup, or what. <laughs> that was the longest intro we've done, I think. Yeah. And it took a long time. There's three different takes we had to merge together there, because you couldn't say the word malignant. No, and I struggled with sadistic as well. And you kept saying statistic. Yeah. So this episode may be triggering for some. It's definitely not easily listening, so we understand if you drop out this week. I have a question. Yes. You said she's an angel of death. Mm-hmm. Is there a term angel of mercy? Yes, it is. It's That's, interchangeable. Is it? Yeah. What is it called if if someone decides to kill patients that are terminally ill and suffering? Angel of mercy. That is the angel of mercy. Mm. So why are they interchangeable then when an angel of death is killing otherwise perfectly fine people like kids and babies for example because it's illegal and it's even though they are maybe helping somebody along who is terminal the, and i know that person then didn't consent to that and even yeah. if they did we have laws for people that can't yes. just be yeah murdered essentially by the the doctors and staff etc but the, there, there, must, there must be a difference yeah it's often used interchangeably but in our minds as novices there is a distinct difference i know the outcome is the same someone has murdered someone mm-hmm I also didn't realise how many TV shows have used this type of killer. Elementary, which I used to be a big fan of. Dexter, which you've watched, haven't you? TV show Lie to Me as well. And this whole TV series based around these types of killers. You've never watched Dexter, have you? No. I watched 10 minutes of it and it wigged me out so much I turned (laughs) it off. Mm. So the reason we're covering this is that in October of 2022, a British nurse is going on trial for the murder of 10 babies and the assault of eight others. This year? Yes. When did that happen? Two years ago. Was I was going to say, what happened? Why didn't I hear about it? But COVID? Yes, that's exactly I, it. I haven't heard about that. That sounds like that sounds like a big one. That's bigger than this. Why aren't we talking about that one? Because, bigger than this because one. reporting restrictions have been in place for the last two years and we don't know yet if the judge will allow this case to be reported on for that trial. It's on the docket for six months, which is a really long time. I'm not casting aspersions of guilt or innocence, but being a nurse, it's inevitable that the case that case will be compared to this one. I'm also not naming her, although the name is out there, because I still believe innocent until proven guilty, and I don't believe her name should have been released. It's a really difficult case. There is 
much, much speculation, which I'm not going to get into. But it made me realise that the Beverly Alec trial took place before you were born, Cameron. And there are a lot of listeners out there who will not know it. And there may be parallels. We don't know yet. And chatting it over with your older sibling this weekend, they also didn't know many of the details. And they thought it was one thing. And I'm sat there going, no, it wasn't. And there's been many documentaries and books. So here we are. Finally, before we move on to get into the case, yeah. you mentioned Joseph Mengele. Yes. Wasn't he the head king Nazi? Yes. Kind of, the, the one that yes. did a lot of the experiments on twins, etc. Yeah. I know some people try to rationalise what he did and say that, oh, he advanced various... He was a visionary and all that stuff, yeah. you could have gotten that without people suffering. Mm-hmm. Injecting babies with battery acid You, did, you don't need to do that. I know, I know some people try to rationalise it and excuse it, saying, oh, that helped with advance, blah, blah, blah. They also burnt books... Mm. that had scientific information and how to process and deal oh. with people. Like, I think one of the first ever book burnings was done in Germany for trans people and like the various different biology books that were on that. They burnt them. Well, I didn't know that one. Yeah, so... But I was astonished he was on some of the lists. If you look at the lists you put in... I Angel's guess he, he qualifies for it, doesn't he? Uh, yeah. He's a doctor that's murdering people intentionally. It's mainly nurses. It is mainly nurses. And we all know there's many cases across Europe, across the US. Um, but they are quite often possible they're not strictly speaking angels of mercy because they often do kill older people but they are the older people are not expected to die they haven't got terminal illnesses but they become a um an inconvenience to the nurse or they've had a bad oh, okay. day so yeah. it's, it's more so because they piss them off basically yes. in, instead of thinking oh this, this poor soul suffering yes they've got some form of terminal cancer they're just in pain i'll put them out of their misery yeah. if you like that might be their ideation behind it yeah but instead it's a i don't want to clean this guy's ass Yes, that's no. exactly what it is. But the, this one stuck because it was children. I mean, this was in the early 90s. Life was going on. Social media wasn't a thing. You saw it on the 6 o'clock or the 10 o'clock news at night. If you had a paper, you might kind of read it. But it's always disjointed. And until I did the research from this, I didn't actually realise just how, oh my God, this actually was. Let me take you to a tiny village called Corby Glen in Lincolnshire, with even now a population of only 1,000 people, and it's about nine miles from the town of Grantham. I've been through Grantham once by accident when we took the wrong turn on the motorway services off the A1M. Um, Beverly Gale Allett was born on the 4th of October 1968, so she's just coming up to her 54th birthday when we're recording this, but she'll be 54 when this comes out. One of four children, don't know where in the hierarchy she sits. She won't be 54 if you're listening to this on Patreon. Because <laughs> this will be released on the third. <laughs> the father worked at an off-license, which is a bottle shop for our new Australian listeners, and her mother was a school cleaner. Now, she was completely uneventful academic. She left school at 16, which is perfectly normal back then, got a job in a local pub. Unusual at 16, but you're still allowed to serve if the licence holder was behind the bar. Whilst working there, she began a relationship with a young chap who went through a hell of a time with her for two years. He later told how she would lie and manipulate him and eventually escalate to verbal, then physical abuse, where she would kick and punch him. By the age of 20, though, she met a former nurse who offered to help her study for exams to get into nursing college. She was able to scrape through and going on to, t- to go take a nursing course at the college in Grantham. Uh, 
In those days, you did not need to have a degree to become a nurse, and a state-enrolled nurse, or SEN, was the route a lot of people took back then to become qualified. Is that equivalent of like an apprenticeship? It's not the same, but can parallels be drawn? Yes. Yeah, you had uh, SRN, which was state-registered nurses, which were the elite, highly qualified, and you had SENs, and then you had ward assistants. And the SENs were people that, couldn't for whatever reason go on to higher education and you would study and work on the wards and live in dorms as you qualified so it allowed people that maybe had a true um, calling and empathy to become nurses they didn't have the financial means yes to do it yeah the traditional route yeah that was it but that's all gone now she moved into the college dorm, as usual, as I said, and then strange things started to happen. Beverly claimed that a poltergeist had stuck a carving knife into her pillows. They claimed the poltergeist set the bathroom curtains on fire. Police were even called in to investigate a kitchen fire and the appearance of faeces in the fridge. There was also a poop gate incident, which apparently um, faeces were smeared all over various walls in the dorm. She had been displaying some unusual behaviours, however, whilst at school and then at college, and it seemed to have got worse the older she got. Beverly wore bandages and plasters over wounds that she wouldn't allow to be examined. She had gallbladder pain, headaches, urinary infections, uncontrolled vomiting, blurred vision, back trouble and ulcers. And they were letting this person train to be a nurse? This was all at school, all of those things, but... This was coming through with the college stuff. Well, yeah, you said a poltergeist tried to stab her in the head when she was asleep. Yeah. There's turds in the fridge. Yep. So she also developed appendicitis, apparently. But, boom, she frequently had to move doctors when she was younger. They became more suspicious of her behaviour. And she was more than just suffering with health anxiety or being frequent flyers sometimes known. She presented to the hospital with what the doctors actually believed was appendicitis. And they operated only to discover that there was nothing wrong, but they still removed the healthy organ. I thought you were going to say she'd already had it removed. That's been known. <laughs> I've heard of those cases. It's growing back. The wound mysteriously failed to heal. And it was discovered she kept plucking at the stitches. So everybody is now shouting at their phones going Munchausen's, aren't they? So let's have a quick overview of what it is and what it isn't, according to the NHS. Munchausen syndrome is a psychological disorder whereby someone pretends to be ill or deliberately produces symptoms of illness in themselves. The main intention is to assume the sick role so that people care for them and they are the centre of attention. Any practical benefit in pretending to be sick, for example, claiming benefits, is not the reason for their behaviour. Munchausen syndrome is named after a German aristocrat, Baron Munchausen, who became famous for telling wild, unbelievable tales about his exploits. And I think the phrase was coined for this disorder in about 1953 by one researcher. It's often called factitious disorder by professionals, and I cannot find why or when that was the case. If you think about the word in fact-itious, there's nothing based in fact about the illness, is there? It's defined as artificially created or developed. Mm. That's what factitious means. Well, there you go then. It's like if you hear the word factoid, I don't think that means a small interesting fact. I mean, I, I think that's a, a fact that is what people think is correct and it's not. Yeah. 
but that's that's what a lot of the experts like, call uh, it. A factoid is bees shouldn't be able to fly. It's only because they think they can that they do. It's not <laughs> bees fly like a helicopter <laughs> rather than a normal bird. So I want to briefly ask, talk about the difference between hypochondria and Munchausen because they sound very similar. So the description I've got here, because I was Googling it as you were yeah. talking. Hypochondria, also called illness anxiety disorder, is when you're, you're completely preoccupied and worried that you're sick. Munchausen syndrome, now known as factitious disorder, is when you always want to be sick. Yeah. So I think a hypochondria thing is when you really don't want to be sick, but you're paranoid. Like, you get a weird pain in your ass and you think, oh, I've got butt cancer. Yes. And I'm going to die. And then yeah. I think it's also, um, is it medical anxiety disorder that I've heard? Some people get it with their OCD. Where they, or health they, anxiety. Yeah, yeah, they become hyper paranoid that their family members are going to get ill from it, yeah. etc. Whereas I think Munchausen syndrome is, as we're going to discuss in this, more so intentionally creating a problem. It's attention seeking. Yeah. It's attention. Want, want for a better word. Yeah. yeah. Whereas hypochondria, you don't want to be. No, that you're way. just paranoid. You've got it. Yeah. And that's why I guess it's an anxiety disorder. I also didn't realise that um, Munchausen doesn't always include physical ailments, but can include hearing voices or seeing hallucinations. I mean, after all, who can prove that you're not seeing or hearing these things? And again, according to the NHS, there appear to be two separate groups of people affected by Munchausen's. They are women, 20 to 40 years of age, often with a background in healthcare, unmarried white men, 30 to 50 years of age and it's not really understood why and then you add in the by proxy bit which again most people know as in, as, as inducing illnesses and others and you have a whole load more to add to the mix it's really really hard to diagnose and the research is just not there and perfectly innocent people have been accused of the disorders so it's all a bit of a minefield and can only be re-put together after watching a pattern of behavior such as Beverly's to date, but she was good at hiding it and no one did. Do you remember the other week I mentioned that movie called Run? Yes. That's Munchausen by proxy, isn't it? Kind of, I guess, because you're intentionally making your daughter ill so she gets attention, but you don't want your daughter to leave. It's, it's kind of different, but you're purposefully making someone sick. Yes, but you're also getting attention for yourself. Oh, poor mum. Yeah, you're probably getting some sort of societal brownie points. Yeah. Your sibling, we were discussing this over a late brunch, and she immediately went, oh, I watched something. And she said, I can't remember. And I said, D.D. Blanchard. She knew exactly who I meant then. Was that a tall sentence, D.D. Blanchard? Yeah, D.D. Blanchard. I wasn't having any one of my sessions. Stroke. Yeah, she was the birth giver. She wasn't a mother. She was a birth giver. And the stuff that she did to her daughter was absolutely horrific. But her daughter is, I believe, she's still in jail for killing a mother. But, yeah, what she did was... And it, it was it was a grift. The hers was a grift. Okay. Yeah, it was a bit different. So whilst at the college, Beverly started presenting at the nurse's office with all sorts of new ailments, high fever that couldn't be explained, and inflamed breast tissue. They eventually concluded that she was swallowing near boiling water to raise her temperature. No idea if that's even possible. I know we drink hot tea and hot coffee, but drinking it that hot to make your temperature go up to then present with, yeah. And she was injecting herself with saline to induce the inflamed breast. And no one reported it. She was at the college for two years and she missed 126 days of the school year during that two-year period. You have to have a well over 90% attendance. Now you do. Then you didn't. 
Imagine your doctor or nurse being someone that, that only turns up for a third of it. I, I know you're, like, the ranking with degrees is, degrees is you get like a 2-1, or 2-2, two, two, whatever. And they're like varying degrees of how good they are. But imagine you turn up and you go, yeah, I got a third in my degree. And I'm a do- No. Well, I'll explain at the end what this actually contributed to a change in, in all of it. But yeah, she missed 126 days. As she obviously wasn't in class and she wasn't even trying to catch up, she failed her exams multiple times, but she did eventually manage to scrape a passing grade. You say 90%. I don't know. It could have been as low as 46. We don't know what that was, but she did manage to get through. But she was the only nurse on her course to fail to get a job immediately on qualifying. Like you say, if she's rocked up with the equipment of, oh, I've got a third, and they're going, oh, we don't want you. So being an ER doctor, someone comes in from a car crash, you're like, oh, I wasn't there that day. I can only do drownings. Yeah. Useless. In February 1991, she applied at her local hospital in Grantham. They were chronically understaffed, but all the adult wards refused to take her. But the paediatric ward, or Ward 4, were so desperate they agreed to take her on a short-term contract, even though she had no qualifications or experience of nursing children. She fitted right in. Staff, patients and their families loved her. She was bright, happy, cheerful and did everything she could to make their hospital stay a good experience. Ward 4 wasn't an acute ward. Most children coming in would be treated for things minor, like infections, or perhaps they had some other ailments that were not responding to drugs that needed tweaking of their regimen, and then they would leave. So that was February. On the 21st of February, Beverly had been on the staff for six days. Six days. When a seven-week-old baby was brought in with a chest infection, Beverly was basically assigned the baby and his family as sort of a special liaison, if you will. She tells the child's parents the baby was in good hands, go home, get some rest and don't worry, which is exactly what the exhausted parents wanted to hear and off they went. Seven weeks old is tiny. The child is hooked up to all sorts of monitors, but they fail to go off when the baby goes into an unexpected respiratory collapse very shortly after the parents leave. That's basically when the blood can't get oxygen from the lungs and it can be caused by lung or heart problems. Luckily, Nurse Alec was with him and raised the alarm. The parents rush back and find the baby has deteriorated. So, understandably, they stayed with the child all night and were relieved in the morning when their baby opened their eyes and after checks, all seemed well apart from the underlying chest infection. Staff didn't think that the child had a heart problem or lung problems, but the collapse was worrying and the baby had to be constantly monitored, but seemed to be doing very well when Beverly told the father to go and rest in the parents' room on the ward at around midnight on the 22nd. The father is woken around 4am to be told his child had suffered a heart attack and the team were trying to resuscitate after the monitors had yet again failed and it was only the quick thinking of Nurse Allett that brought help. The team tried for an hour 
but the baby had been deprived of oxygen and suffered brain damage and was on life support. And the parents were told that their child would not survive. So they agreed to turn the machines off on the 23rd of February. Two weeks after Beverly joined the staff on Ward 4, the strange stuff started to happen. We all know now how tightly controlled drugs on wards are. Even back then they were to a point. They had keys for the drugs trolley. But the key went missing, which was not only worrying, getting it replaced, would have involved a lot of form filling, but these things do happen. But the staff were more unnerved by things going missing from the staff lockers. No doubt no one wanted to shout thief, but they were uncomfortable. You know, purses and bags and just bits and bobs were going missing. They didn't really have time to process what was going on. When on the 5th of March 1991, an 11-year-old boy with cerebral palsy was admitted after suffering an epileptic seizure at school. Cerebral palsy is a brain condition. It has a number of causes, can be very mild or cause severe problems leading to lifelong disability. This young child had complex needs and needed special care. The head nurse on the ward asked Beverly to stay with him while she did her rounds. She didn't get very far. The nurse was called back as the boy had stopped breathing and was turning blue and they couldn't find a pulse. He hadn't even been on the ward 24 hours. Officially, his death was listed as epilepsy. 8th of March, 1991. Three days after the 11-year-old boy had died, a 15-month-old baby was brought in with a chest infection, just like the initial baby that had died at seven weeks old. The coincidences continued to mount. The child was placed in the same bed as that seven-week-old baby had died. This new child had two cardiac arrests. Luckily for the child, it was transferred to a much larger hospital with more advanced facilities. Worryingly, staff there noticed an injection site with an air bubble underneath it. They dismissed it as an accidental injection and it wasn't investigated at the time. And I'm sat there thinking, how can you have an accidental injection? Everything has to be logged that anybody has. I know the time when most medical malpractice things happens or when accidental deaths happen that shouldn't or when shift changes shift changeovers happen, mm. which is why nurses usually work long shifts and so do doctors you think you don't want your doctor to be exhausted but i think it's when there's a miscommunication between shift changeovers that when things go bad did you inject this person did you give them their pills yes when you didn't or no when you have it's it's easily done so a a, an accidental injection could possibly happen but not under those circumstances do you know what i mean it was whoa now that child survived but was left with severe physical and de- developmental problems. I think you've got some fucking speech problems. Yeah. The 20th of March 1991. A 5-month-old baby was admitted to ward 4 with a chest infection. Doctors were happy to let the child go home, but the parents were worried. The child had been born premature and understandably asked if the child could be kept in overnight for observations just in case. Predictably, the child had a collapse the next day while Nurse Alec was with them. The head paediatrician arrived and was initially baffled as the symptoms that the child was suffering from did not match a chest infection. The child was unresponsive, cold and clammy 
yet sweating. Beverly suggested they test for hyperglycemia. Didn't make any sense, but they had nothing to lose. And what do you know? Nurse Alec was correct. The child was treated and recovered. That same day, a five-year-old with pneumonia, who was in the ward, complained that the drip in their arm was hurting and Nurse Alec went to check it. Yet again, another collapse. The crash team spent over 30 minutes trying to revive the child and had to shock them more than seven times to get the heartbeat back. The child was transferred to the larger hospital and eventually suffered permanent brain damage, leaving them physically disabled for life. The same day again, a two-year-old who was in after suffering a head fracture stopped breathing and turned blue. The child was revived, sent to the larger hospital and made a full recovery. Beverly then had three days off. That five-month-old had been kept in as the doctors and the parents were a bit concerned. But when Beverly returned to duty, the head paediatrician said the child was fine to go home and could Beverly take out the IV line. And the child collapsed again with hypoglycemia. The head paediatrician was baffled, took blood samples to try and find out what was going on and sent the child to the larger hospital. They made a full recovery. The staff were really starting to get suspicious. To put this in context, the larger Queen's Hospital in Nottingham treated 40,000 children a year, averaging just six cardiac arrests. But in 1991, six cases were referred from the Grantham Hospital alone. So they had a phenomenal rate. It didn't stop. The 1st of April 1991, a nine-week-old baby was admitted to Ward 4 with gastroenteritis. Being premature, it was erring on the side of caution to keep an eye on them. Two days later, Beverly reported the child seemed to be suffering with hypoglycemia. The child was feeling cold and clammy. The child was tested, but she didn't have hypoglycemia. The doctors were happy the child could go home and be monitored by the parents, who ended up calling their GP after the child appeared to go into convulsions and was screaming with pain. The doctor suggested colic and said the child would be fine. The child died during the night whilst in bed being watched by her parents and it was put down as a case of SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. That child was actually a twin and as no one knew why the other one had died the remaining baby was admitted to Grantham Hospital as a precaution and the nurse on duty was Beverly. It wasn't long before Nurse Allett was again summoning a resuscitation team to revive the baby who had stopped breathing. Efforts to revive were successful but two days later She suffered a similar attack, resulting in her lungs collapsing. Following another revival effort, she was transferred to Nottingham, where it was found that five of her ribs were broken, known as squeeze fractures. Staff assumed the broken ribs were a result of CPR and no investigations were carried out. She survived, but was left with severe brain damage. 
and still it carried on. A six-year-old was admitted a few days later for post-operative recovery after having an air rifle pellet removed from his lung. I was baffled how he did that, but bless his heart. He seemed to be doing well. He was having regular antibiotic injections and the last one was administered by Nurse Beverly. He had a seizure and stopped breathing. Luckily, he survived. Unlike the 15-month-old girl admitted on the 22nd of April 1991. She needed a breathing tube and was being treated for asthma. The doctor stepped out of the room to chat with the child's parents, leaving the child with Beverly. Within minutes, the child went into respiratory failure. She was resuscitated. Once she was stabilised and on a ventilator, the doctor stepped out of the room once again to try and speak with her parents, leaving the child with Beverly. They didn't know at that point that she was doing anything funny. How many occasions do you have on a shift where, unfortunately, a patient does die when you're a nurse? I don't know how frequent it is. There's, there's probably a number that if it, it exceeds a certain amount, then it probably does get flagged. And does some, now. Didn't then. Didn't then, exactly. Mm. So for them, leaving them or leaving their child in the care of Beverly at the time probably wasn't mm. considered so weird. So once again, the child had another attack and died. The autopsy said natural causes. But by now, an investigation was underway as the hospital were convinced that there was some sort of airborne pathogen must have been responsible for all these cardiac arrests. Of course, nothing was found. Finally, the hospital administrators took their suspicions to the police on the 30th of April 1991. The police superintendent in charge of the investigation suspected that there was a serial killer on Ward 4. First, he ordered the exhumation of the last child that was supposed to have died from asthma attack, a.k.a. natural causes. Tests showed high levels of potassium and the presence of lignocaine, a drug used to treat cardiac arrests in adults. It's never used on children. The police team made up a chart showing who was on duty during each of the children's attacks or seizures. In every single instance, Beverly was not only on duty, but was present in the room when the attack occurred and was the first to raise the alarm. Police brought her in for questioning, but she was adamant she was innocent, often denying she had been on duty during some of the attacks, despite other staff saying that she was. Suspiciously, the allocation notebook, or what we would call a duty roster, had several pages ripped out of it, specifically for the dates when the children suffered attacks. Nowadays, I suspect you would clock in and out with a swipe card, wouldn't you? But anyway, without any concrete evidence, police couldn't arrest Beverly. And under urging from the police, the hospital suspended her from duty. She had worked at the hospital for 59 days. The parents of the children who had died or had been injured were stunned. The parents of the twins had even asked her to be godmother. She couldn't have done anything. Some of the children's parents even hired private investigators to try and prove Beverly's innocence. The police were still investigating. They couldn't let this go. They eventually found nine blood samples of the 13 children who had suffered various attacks and sent them off for deep forensic testing. But that would take time to come back. 
What convinced the police and the doctors that they had been right was that the children were no longer suffering strange cardiac arrests or hypoglycemic attacks once Beverly had been suspended. If it wasn't her, they would have done that anyway, though. You would stop. Once once someone is, someone else has been suspected of it, you'd stop the same way that if you are a copycat. That's exactly what I thought. So it could have been coincidence, but it was strange, yeah? So after Beverly was suspended, she moved from Grantham down to Peterborough to stay with a friend who believed in her. That soon changed. The friend's brother found bleach in his bed. The family dog had a seizure and was foaming at the mouth after Beverly was seen to give it some pills. Why was there bleach in his bed? How was there bleach in his bed? What do you mean? He pulled his dude back to get into bed and there was bleach poured all over the bed. The fuck? Yes. Beverly gave the brother some juice to drink. Now, it was just Beverly and the brother in the house. The family had gone out. The next thing he knows, he was feeling dizzy and sweaty. And then the lights went out. The family came back and found him and he was rushed to hospital. What do you reckon? Yep hypoglycemic shock the police then started to get test results back from those blood samples they'd sent off the most shocking was the five month old those showed an insulin level of 43,147 milliunits one of the highest levels ever found in a human being other results were found for insulin or potassium in levels that were not possible to have occurred naturally in some in anything and add into that the lidocaine that was found in others beverly was arrested on the 26th of july 1991 they kept managing to get the usual extensions and didn't formally charge her until the november searches found those missing pages from the nurse's log in beverly's house why on earth did she keep them trophies again most people would have burnt them or bent them, but she didn't. She was cool, calm and completely unconcerned and just deny, deny, deny. There was a series of hearings as usual and eventually she was charged with four counts of murder, 11 counts of attempted murder and 11 counts of causing grievous bodily harm. And true to form, she stepped up her game playing. As she was being constantly monitored, her various illnesses that she complained about were checked and dismissed. And she turned to the only method she had to control her life and was eventually diagnosed with anorexia. She'd always been what we would call heavyset, but after losing 70 pounds very quickly, it worried a lot of people. Other experts, not so much. They thought it was manipulation and said so. 15th of February... 1993 she goes to trial she missed most of it saying she was sick and they let her get away with it experts testified that she started with munchausen which had then turned into munchausen by proxy experts testified she wasn't mentally ill as such the defense says she was ill on the 20th of may 1993 she was found guilty of four counts of murder three attempted murder and six counts of grievous bodily harm she was sentenced to 13 life sentences with a minimum of 30 years. But we are not finished. Oh, no. One week into her sentence, 
she was transferred to Rampton Secure Hospital in Nottinghamshire after prison officials determined she was at risk of self-harm after she basically went on hunger strike and she refused to drink as well. Now, since Rampton is a hospital and not a prison, the patients get a lot more freedom. Alec was given a private room with a television and a leave and allowed out for shopping trips. Apparently, though, she carried on with the attention-seeking and they were obviously not good at keeping an eye on her as apparently she managed to either eat or swallow somehow ground glass and even poured boiling water on her hand all on purpose to get the treatment. She even took up sewing and possibly knitting. You can see her on the documentaries. Bet they have to count the needles in and out. 2001, it was reported she wanted to marry her boyfriend in Rampton. He was dumped a vampire killer after murdering a woman and apparently drinking her blood. Beverly wanted a full white wedding, cakes the works, and they applied to get married in the chapel at Rampton. Doesn't vampire killer imply you kill the vampires, not you are the vampire? Yeah, yeah, I know. Bad name, doesn't yeah. fit. Yeah, press, isn't it? It was said that they saw each other three times a week at dances that were held at Rampton and they had been engaged for 12 months. Goodness knows if it ever happened. I hope not. Couldn't find any more than that. And pictures from 2007. Looks like the anorexia was miraculously cured. She could be a real poster person for how to fix anorexia. You've got the pictures there, camera. Yeah. She's wearing an um, umbro, umbra. Yeah. Branded thing. Like, she looks very English, so I'm going to say. She's rather solid shall we say, in those pictures. But like a fridge. Yeah. Beverly eventually admitted three murders and six assaults to stop her getting sent to prison after experts had yet again said she was not mentally ill and should be in the prison, not a hospital. But she liked it at Rampton, didn't want to leave. As of August 2021, she was technically eligible for parole but only if she is assessed as being well enough for a move back to a mainstream prison. While she remains under section in hospital, she will not be assessed by the parole board. If she is ever returned to prison, it is for the Secretary of State for Justice to refer the case to the board, and the Home Office has said that she will never be eligible for parole. There was actually an NHS inquiry into this and it was held in private, I believe, so no one actually knows the outcome and the head paediatric doctors lost their jobs over it, even though they pretty much blew the whistle on her. She's also a big part of the reason why the uh, NMC, which is the Nurses Medical Council, I think. No, it's not. What's the NMC, Cameron? Google it. Uh, it stands for the Nursing and Midwifery Council. Council. Yeah, so this is the regulatory body for nurses. They require every student nurse to log every hour of their training to do make-up time if they miss a significant amount of it and to specialise into branches early in the training. So what we said, you said, she basically turned up with the three and now they won't let people through with anything. You've got to make this all up. So Munchausen's and Munchausen by proxy is incredibly hard to diagnose and even harder to treat. It's a personality disorder rather than an actual mental illness, according to the experts. And you have to get the person with it to accept that they have it and most won't. 
But how can you not when you're presented with the facts of what you're doing is exactly the definition of it? And I know we're logical thinking, not normal people, but you get what I mean. Mm-hmm. If you're presented with the facts of this is what people that have it that do and you're doing that now, how can you then say, no, I don't have that? Or can you say to someone, how else did that bleach end up in that guy's bed? You did it. Why did he do it? You weren't trying to clean the sheets for him. You were trying to do something to him. So what else is it? You're trying to harm him. So then, I don't know, is it weird? Some kind of like weird savior thing where you want to be the one to then help? Because she's always the one that finds them. Oh, that's that's the hero syndrome. Yeah, that's that's another one. But that's... I know that's common with firemen. They'll intentionally set fires. Not to then common, save... but it does happen. I mean, in the sense of the like the savior thing. Yeah, it's people the that heroes. do it are commonly firemen. That's what I'm saying. It's not common amongst firemen, but yeah, yeah. They, 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 with nurses, they sweep in to save the day. Yeah, um, that's yeah, that can happen. But with hers, the attention she got for being there, and you know. I was doing some reading about when you go to hypoglycemic shock and, and enter the coma from, from hypoglycemia. It's not a quick death, apparently. It it, it puts you into a coma and causes brain damage because your blood has no sugar in it. Yeah, and so, you, so the brain stops functioning. So when the brain stops functioning, what happens? It, bits start dying. Yeah, and that's why so many of them are it's, left with all these disorder, it, disabilities. It's a it's not as an, it was it's a hormone. People don't consider it a hormone. Some of the vitamin D isn't so much a vitamin; it's a hormone as well. But a lot of bodybuilders will inject insulin because it's anabolic. It causes growth. Yeah. Because it can make people gain weight easier because they they start using the glucose in the cells and it gets like shuttled away and stored as fat so they can then gain weight. But that's dangerous to inject. It's, it's super common for bodybuilders to inject slightly too much, like barely anything, and they just fucking collapse and they go into coma. So imagine when you're pumping a kid with. Well, that 43,000 mini units. What's she doing? Like a two litre bottle of it. Again, you can only, if you can get these people to accept they've got it. Do you know what the treatment is? CBT. To try and get them to change the way of thinking. And so many people just do that. Well, that would be the correct way of doing it. You're changing the way that someone's thinking. But when you say the word CBT, which stands for Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, it's just rather than being upset about a situation, you kind of change the way you think about it. So then you kind of go, oh, wait, it's not actually that bad. That's kind of what CBT teaches you to do with someone with anxiety or depression. But I think with something like Munchausen syndrome, which lends itself to creating external violence or putting violence onto other people, you can't just be like, oh, just think differently because mm-hmm. that will make you do it less. No. <laughs> well, I, I don't think there's any real doubt that she had Munchausen by proxy, but it's the manipulation that gets me. And the fact that she went from basically zero to 100 miles an hour in 59 days, wasn't it? So that's what I've got written down here. I write notes as you waffle. Mm. It says, I agree with the life sentence. Almost seven children in the span of almost four weeks. The rate that the incidents recurring seem too frequent for a person that would slow down. Yeah. It's just it's happening so much so fast over a short span of time. I'm more for rehab. Not rehab, you know what I mean? You re- re- we rehabilitate someone, you reintroduce them into society. But if, if they're escalating that quick, so fast, onto kids... That have done nothing wrong because because they're kids. I don't yeah. think I don't think that person is then redeemable. If it's like a, a murder when they were sixteen because they got into a bar fight and someone got killed, they were then sentenced to prison or like sentenced to life, or whatever, or twenty years they get out. That person's not shown repeat behaviour that would put them in that environment. Maybe they had like a difficult childhood, but it's not the same as someone who intentionally goes into nursing. You don't you don't accidentally just become a nurse. You don't wake up and go, oh fuck, I got a badge, I can get to the hospital. That doesn't happen. She was twenty before she. Went into well, and, and she really wanted to do it, do it because she kept failing. Mm. So it's repeated events that are happening over a very short period of time. Well, I, I'm a bit torn whether there's a mental illness in there as well. There doesn't appear to be anything, 
in her background. There doesn't appear to be any abuse or trauma. But that also depends on friends and family having told everything, doesn't it? It's also said that she was a babysitter when she was younger. And who knows if small incidences happened to those children? You know, oh, they fell off the sofa and bumped their head. And it, no, she smacked me off the wall. It may all be in that report that wasn't made public. Should she stay in prison or stay in Rampton? Well, if she goes to prison, there is a very, very, very small remote chance she could get parole. However, in Rampton, she's living nicely and even gets days out. So I'm not sure she should be given any privileges at all. Yeah, I didn't realise until I did the research that she was getting these shopping days out and all the rest of it. You would expect that in somebody who was getting prepared to be released on parole. But Rampton, because it's a hospital, they say it's therapeutic. So I'm a bit torn. I'm not no, I'm not one for state-sponsored violence or sentencing people to death as a whole. So I know you're saying there's a sentencing her to, to life, but then if you're saying that she's shouldn't have any kind of happiness, she's just stuck in a like a room that's dark. Oh, or, she where, gets where's where's the line end? Because it's not just arbitrary. There has to be a line within that somewhere. And she's killed seven kids. She should never be released or, or harmed seven. She, yeah. She should she shouldn't be released into public because her propensity for violence or causing harm to vulnerable people or even just a dude trying to sleep in his bed. She shouldn't be released because she's going to cause it again, I think. So, but then... It's the days out I don't like, but looking at her, I don't think she'd be doing a runner away from any of the... And I, I, I don't think her escaping her. is a concern in the first place. No. It's, it's more so than your... The, 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 the moral quandary that you've got there is, does that person who's killed kids, do they deserve to go out and enjoy themselves? That's basically what you're and trying I to like, ponder. And I think that's how everybody felt at the time with the fact that she had killed completely... All victims are innocent regardless. Yeah. But these were babies yeah. and young children. We've gone from, you know, the oldest was 11. I think the problem with the shopping days out is that you're you're thinking that it's... Not necessarily you. You're thinking that they're going out and like spending money and they're going to shops and having fun. Right? It could be they're then buying clothes that they need so when they go back into the hospital they then have clothes that they need or want. But then you could argue, do they really need them? Could kind of give them, get, wear what you're given? Why are they going out for a shopping trip? That sounds like fun. And they're then spending money and they're like, where is that money coming from? But then people say, oh, it comes from tax money. Yeah, but then... That tax money then gets spent and then they pay tax on that and then it goes back into the system. It's not like it's just in then out. It's not like when you give money to rich people, they then just keep it and don't spend it. They actually spend it. So it matters. <laughs> so this is uh, so this this is one that um is probably gonna flare up because of this other case that's gonna, you know, go on from now till the beginning of next year. So and that's the end of this week's episode. And finally, the victims who should not be forgotten. Liam Taylor, aged seven weeks old. Timothy Hardwick, 11 years old. Becky Phillips, nine weeks old. Claire Peck, 15 months old. I've recently started watching Jeffrey Dahmer yes. on Netflix. Yes. thing with Evan Peters. Yes. I'm not going to discuss it, and we're probably not ever going to do that case because it's been done to death by so many people. We wouldn't really be adding anything apart from my weird isms of jumping in, mm-hmm. calling him like a gimp, randomly. Mm-hmm. It was very uncomfortable to see Evan Peters get his finger sucked by a man that he was about to murder. That was a bit weird to see at the time. But seeing that and seeing it so dramatised, that now I think when you're telling me the story of what's happening in the cases, I'm almost picturing it in a dramatised way that would exist in the, yes. the Dharma series. And I was like, He's killed, she's killed kids. Yeah. <laughs> like you can't... What? 
You know, if I say to you as a Brit, fellow Brit, Trevor McDonough, you no. know who he is, don't you? No. Oh. 26. Who's that? Oh. Sir Trevor McDonald. He was a, a newsreader for many, many, many years until he got his knighthood. And he retired. And he did a documentary on her. And I love him to bits. I think he's wonderful. But the documentary wasn't. A documentary shit. Mm, it, he doesn't. He did. It just didn't work for him. But there's 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 quite a few others that have done this on it. Just literally put her into YouTube, and you will find the documentaries on on her. But it's quite disconcerting. I have seen the ones where she sat in ransom. She's either sewing or knitting or doing something, and she just looks like an average twenty year old girl just chilling with her mates. But she's where she should be. She's she's away from people that she can then cause yeah. harm to. Yeah, but why she did it, she's never explained why she did it. And I don't think she genuinely would ever be able, capable of doing it. So, so that's, that's the end of the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you're listening on Patreon, you're better than everyone else. You still are. I hope people feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you next time. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at murdermemurderpodcast and email us at murdermemurderpodcast at gmail.com. Peace. Bye. Sometimes, as a malignant hero, why buy they induce a...